Today is June 17th, and before we get started, I just want to send a shout out to my dad. It's his birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. This episode is dedicated to you, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's a question. When someone mentions the word pharmacist, what do you think of and visualize? I have been fortunate to have worked with many and know of a number of pharmacists, but when someone mentions that word, I still often think of someone working at a retail pharmacy such as CVS or Walgreens or Duane Reed uh, or any other similar drug outlet or store. In today's episode, however, we are going to learn that a pharmacist can be involved in a lot more different parts of healthcare than you may have initially realized, and that they may be actually be taking care of you, your parents, your grandparents directly, and maybe not even realize it. Let's cue the intro. Hello, and welcome to Health Careers with Dr. Marin, where we have deep, personalized and eye-opening conversations with various people in healthcare. We learn what it's really like to work in different health careers from people who are living it today. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Martin, and welcome. On today's episode, we're going to talk with Elizabeth Martin. She goes by Liz. She has been a pharmacist since 2012. She first got her Bachelor of Science degree at LSU, or Louisiana State University. She received her doctorate degree in pharmacy at University of Tennessee. She did her postgraduate training in ambulatory care and academic pharmacy at the VA Medical Center in Indianapolis, Indiana. While holding several positions such as assistant professor and ambulatory care clinical pharmacist, she has worked in Indiana and Hawaii. Currently, Liz works as an ambulatory care clinical pharmacist at the Swedish medical group Ballard Primary Care Clinic in Seattle, Washington, and as a clinical assistant professor with the University of Washington. She has a wealth of experience not only providing care to patients, but also teaching pharmacy students. Let's get to meet Liz. Well, hello and welcome to the podcast, Liz. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm very happy you're here with us today. You know, for our listeners, uh, Liz is actually my sister-in-law, married to my younger brother, Ryan. Suffice to say, Ryan is fortunate to have a wonderful partner like like yourself. That's very kind of you to say. (laughs) (laughs) Just to make it public. (laughs) (laughs) It's on the record now. So, Liz, can you please share with us what exactly your occupation is and what you do? Yeah. So, generally speaking, I'm a pharmacist, and the more specific description of what I do is that I'm a clinical pharmacist working in a doctor's office. So I work in a, just a, your regular doctor's office, family practice, internal medicine. So for a lot of our listeners, that's probably very similar to the type of doctor's office that you've gone to during your years when you were growing up. And most people think when they hear the term pharmacist, they think about Uh, pharmacists who may work at a retail pharmacy, such as Walgreens or CVS, Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. is more involved in the um, processing of medication orders and dispensing of those medications. But my type of pharmacy practice is on the, in the clinical side where I help the team members who I work with, other physicians, nurses, other healthcare professionals. I, we work together as a team to come up with the best medication therapy for our patients. So I actually don't dispense any medications and it's a very 
rare day that I'm actually handling medications. So what is your day-to-day like then in this setting? Yeah, so day-to-day, I, I go to work. I work usual hours, 7 to 3.30 or 7.30 to 4. That's my typical working hours. And I, I go to the clinic. Uh-huh. Our clinic has about 18 providers. Those providers are mostly physicians, medical doctors, but we also have a handful of nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And then mm-hmm. we also have me, the pharmacist, and we have a, beha- a behavioral health therapist or a clinical psychologist. And that's the clinical team at the clinic. And typically my day is split up into three main buckets, I would say. One of those is direct patient care. So I have appointments with patients, which I can talk a little bit more later, but they either come in physically to see me and I see them in an exam room, or sometimes we do shorter, more concise visits over the phone. The second bucket is serving as a drug information specialist for the clinic. So lots of times some of the the team members who I work with may have a question about a medication or say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about using this medication for this reason. Can you help me up with the dosing? Or maybe they they, they get a question from a patient, a medication-related question that they're not sure quite what the answer is. So they may come to me with those questions. So just serving as a resource to the other providers that I work with. And then the last thing would be the committee work that I do that is for the health system. So the clinic that I work in is part of a larger health system that involves Mm -hmm. other doctor's office clinics around the Seattle area, as well as the hospitals that we are connected to. So there's a lot of different committees that I serve on as the pharmacist representative. So that's, that's the breakdown of my day is involved in one of those three areas. I see. So there's a lot of actually some, so you're actually seeing a lot of patient to patient interaction. Yes, a lot. And you're helping them with their, their drug, especially if they're having multiple drugs or medications that they are prescribed, you're helping them manage that. Is that what it appropriate? Yeah. Appropriately? So I can, I can talk a little bit more about that. So the typical patient population or type of patient that I see are older patients, anywhere I would say on average from patients who are in their 50s up to their 80s and 90s. Um, and then there are pharmacists, just as a side note, who may specialize more in the pediatric arena, but that is okay. not my specialty area. My specialty area is for older patients who have what we call chronic diseases. So things that don't crop up just on one day where they might just have a sore throat or they might get acutely ill for a few days, that's not my area. I'm dealing with patients who have chronic diseases like elevated blood pressure, which is called hypertension or elevated blood sugar values. We call that diabetes. Um, If they have breathing problems like COPD or asthma, there's there's a huge number of chronic diseases that any one patient may have. And lots of patients have multiple chronic diseases. And these chronic diseases are oftentimes managed with medications. And so it's the, the role that I play is helping come up with an individualized medication therapy plan for each patient because there's not just one medication for one disease state that each patient with that disease state will take. There's lots of things you have to consider, such as what you already alluded to are the other medications that a patient may be on. Is it Mm -hmm. safe for them to take them together? Are there interactions that we need to be aware of? Um, Lots of medications need to be processed through the kidney 
or the liver, and we need to make sure that that patient's kidneys and liver is is uh, acting appropriately in order to process the medication. And if they do have kidney or liver problems, we may need to do a dose adjustment for certain medications. Um, another thing I look at is the cost of medications, which is a very mm-hmm. big concern right. for a lot of our patients that we may have the best medication in the world to treat a certain condition, but if it's not affordable for the patient, then it's not much help to them. And then another big area I work in is is what we call medication adherence. And what that means is how the how how well is the patient taking the medication as it is intended to be taken? Because again, the medication is only useful if the patient is taking it correctly. So things that I can do is help a patient come up with a medication schedule and tips and tricks to help them remember to take their medications not only on time, but in the right way to get the best um, effects from those medications and also minimize the side effects that they may experience. Liz, what is a misconception that you Mm -hmm. think people have of pharmacists? And also, what are the different environments in which a pharmacist can work in? Yeah, definitely. So, and I think that's the biggest surprise that that people have when they learn about the profession of pharmacy is because it's not yet commonly understood, I would say, on a public level that pharmacists do more than retail pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in school, in pharmacy school, which is a post a graduate program after undergrad, which we can talk a little bit more about yeah, later we can, get that. Yep. can mm-hmm. understand. So when you're in pharmacy school, similar to med school and other healthcare professional programs, there are um, a lot of different experiences that those students can get involved in to see what type of pharmacy practice are they interested in pursuing. So just like when you went to medical school, I'm sure you had to do a, s- a certain number of set rotations, and then you could sign up for certain rotations that mm-hmm. were in your interest area that eventually led you to pediatric anesthesiology. And so just like that, for pharmacy, there's a lot of different re- um, avenues that one can take to to pursue a career in pharmacy. So there's the traditional dispensing role, which is the retail pharmacist. Got it. And I want to comment that they do much more than just dispensing. And there's a lot of clinical um information that's going on in a retail pharmacy arena. So those pharmacists will get the orders from the doctor's offices and they will process them. And if they see, based on their knowledge of their patients by looking at other medications that those patients are on, if they see an area of concern or they know the patient and they know, hey, you know, this medication is not going to be a good choice for that specific patient, they can call the doctor's offices and discuss, hey, you know, I was thinking maybe this alternate medication might be best. And then when the patients come to the pharmacy to pick up the medications, they can also spend a lot of time with the uh, patients to counsel them and make sure that the patient is comfortable taking their medication. So that's a retail pharmacist. Okay. So then non-retail pharmacists or pharmacists who may be involved in, in an area like I am in a doctor's office or they may be working in the hospital. So as you imagine, when a patient goes into the hospital to be admitted for a few days, they are having medications uh, provided to them from the hospital. So there needs to be a pharmacy within each hospital and pharmacists working in that pharmacy who are processing those orders for when the patient is in the hospital. And then there are what we call clinical floor pharmacists who are also on the 
the hospital side, what we call the inpatient side, while patients are admitted to the hospital who may work in the ICU or they may work in the medical surgical floor. Mm-hmm. And they actually do rounds. So if you're familiar with with what rounding means when the, yep. the team of doctors go each day and see each of their patients who they're assigned and all the all the people walk into the room, one of those people might be a pharmacist because the pharmacist is looking at the status of the patient from the day before. How are things going? Do we need to adjust any medications? And as a team, the pharmacist, the, the nurses, the physicians, social work often is involved. As a team, they will discuss what is the best next steps for this patient. So there's pharmacists involved there as well. Um, There's a bunch of other types of pharmacists as well that are a little bit more nuanced, but um, let's see. There's also pharmacists who work in long-term care facilities like nursing Mm -hmm. homes who help those patients with manage their medications. So there's lots of different areas that one can specialize in, similar to physicians. Besides having a deep knowledge of medications that are prescribed and over-the-counter, I would presume you would also have to have a deep understanding of things that are being consumed by the patient, such as homeopathic substances or herbal remedies. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, and that is such an important point. I'm really glad you brought that up because lots of times when we ask patients, tell us what medications you're taking. You know, nowadays with what we call electronic health records where everything is online, lots of times we see a full list of patient medications that have been prescribed by by various uh, providers in various areas. So it's it's more helpful in allowing us to see that full list. But lots of times that list is still not complete because when we ask a patient, you know, if we'll go through that medication list and say, is this, you know, accurate? Is this correct? Everything you're taking, lots of times they don't think about some of the items you mentioned, like supplements or natural products that they may also be taking, which can very well interact with some of their prescription medications. And then also just over regular over-the-counter medications, mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. Advil and Motrin. Those, yeah. for some patients, are very high-risk medications that we absolutely need to know about if they're taking them. Um, I'll give you one example. Lots of patients are on a class of medications called blood thinners to help thin their blood because they may be more prone to having thicker blood that can clot. So if we're trying to prevent a blood clot, which ultimately could end up as a stroke if it ended up in the brain or if it went into the lungs, it's what we call a pulmonary embolism. If we're trying to prevent that from happening in a patient, we might put them on a blood thinner. But other things that can thin the blood are things like Advil. And if a patient is on a prescription blood thinner, plus they're taking Advil, that can put that patient at very, very high risk of having blood that's way too thin and Mm -hmm. having them bleed internally, which is the opposite end of a different type of problem. And so when a patient is prescribed a new blood thinner, something that I might do is meet with that patient, tell them all about the new medication, but also remind them, hey, this is a blood thinner. So that means you should not be taking any over-the-counter blood thinners like Advil. Is there a favorite part of your job? Yeah, for me, and the reason why I chose to pursue my specific type of pharmacy, which is called ambulatory care. And all that means is that patients are ambulating in, so walking into the clinic and walking out. It has nothing to do with an ambulance, which is what I thought when I first heard (laughs) that term. (laughs) Um, But so ambulatory care 
another term for that is outpatient care. So patients are not admitted to the hospital. They're just coming in for a 30 to 40 minute appointment, then they're going home. One of the greatest parts, and sometimes the most challenging parts as well, is the amount of interaction you get to have with patients. And so for me, I really enjoy working with patients. And when I when I'm working with a patient under that referral system, which I described earlier, I don't just meet with them once. I, at the, at the minimum, will meet with them over the course of three months at the longest years, however long it takes really to get their disease state, whatever I was referred for, under control. So during that time, as you can imagine, if you're meeting with someone on a monthly basis for 45 minutes at a time over the course of six to nine months, you get to know that person pretty well. Most of the time we're, spend, we're spending in the appointment talking about their medications and how mm-hmm. things are progressing and discussing any changes we need to make. But there's also a time where I get to learn about what's going on in their life. I get to learn about their families, what uh, are the sources of happiness in their life, what are the sources of challenges and struggle. And so you really, really get to know your patients very, very well. So I would say for me, that that is one of the highlights, because then not only do you get to know them so well, but then when you help them succeed, you share in their in their joy of succeeding for their health goals. Liz, is there a particular moment that you can think of where you in your career, in your job that, or I'm sure there's many moments, is there one, is there one though that stands out or that you would like to share that is related to your career? Yeah, like you said, there's there's many moments. I have been fortunate to work with some really amazing patients uh, through throughout the years. And like I just mentioned, you really get to know them and, and, and that is one of the highlights for me. But I would say one patient who comes to mind is a patient who I, who I currently still work with in my current practice here in Seattle. And he is a patient who has diabetes, among a few other things. He is about, I can't remember exactly, but he's probably 73 or 74. And he has struggled with uncontrolled diabetes for a really long time. And one of the things we worry about with someone who has uncontrolled diabetes over the course of years and even decades is the the consequences and repercussions that has on the body. So we're worried about the kidney dealing with all that extra sugar for a long time. That mm-hmm. can really hurt the kidney. It can hurt your nerve endings that are exposed to that higher sugar content. And it can cause what's called peripheral neuropathy, where people have a hard time feeling their toes and their feet, which may lead to, to further complications down the road. They um, Another important nerve ending that can be damaged by higher blood sugar values is the optic nerve. And so some people have vision problems related mm-hmm. to diabetes. And so this individual had had diabetes for a really long time, but wasn't doing the best job of controlling it. And he, he not finally, but he eventually started having some of these complications that we're trying to avoid, which is around the time that I got to meet him and start working with him. And so through the time that I've been working with him, which is now almost three years I've been working with him, he has, we've, we've optimized his medication therapy. We've gotten his blood sugar values under control. One of the labs that we use to assess control in diabetes is something called a hemoglobin A1C. Mm-hmm. So we have his hemoglobin A1C at the level that is now considered controlled. He's been able to lose about 50 pounds. So not only is he healthier from a diabetes perspective, he's doing 
everything he can to prevent further progression of those kidney and nerve problems that we just discussed. And he's also feeling a lot better about his health um, and, and physical health as well. Losing 50 pounds, he, he feels a lot better and he's able to do some things that he wasn't previously able to do. So for me, that is just a huge success for, for him, but also for me to be a part of his journey in regaining his health because he still has, I mean, who knows how long he has left, but he, he in theory, could have another 20 years of life left, if not more. And so he is going to spend however long he has left in a, in a more enjoyable lifestyle than he was prior to getting things under control. Liz, that, how does that feel to you to be part of that? It feels great. It's really great. And it's, it's especially because the amount of time that you spend working with a patient, mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of ups and downs. It's not a straight journey. It wasn't like we started working together and every appointment after that was an improvement. It's, you know, a couple steps forward, a few steps back. And so in order to be a part of someone's journey and ultimately their success is a great feeling. Liz, you know, shifting gears a little bit, um, mm -hmm. you know, how how did you get into, was this being a pharmacist something that you had thought about doing for a long time, even when you were, you know, um, uh, in high school? It was not, specifically being a pharmacist was not my, on my radar. I I always knew that I might end up in the health professional field, but I, I wasn't specific to pharmacy. And I don't have like a specific moment when I said, oh, pharmacy is the way for me. Uh -huh. um, but it was just more of a gradual learning about different health professionals, probably the process of what a lot of your listeners are going through right now, just talking to people, learning what different jobs are like. And right. somehow, I don't remember the moment when, but somehow I landed on this pharmacy path. And to be quite honest, now that I know what I know about pharmacy, I realized how much back then when I committed to going to pharmacy school, how little I actually knew and understood. What you were getting involved in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But fortunately, you know, it, it turned out to be something that I ended up liking and was a good fit for me. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of a gradual process, I would say. So what are the different pathways to get into pharmacy school from high school? So the, the answer to that question is it depends. There's lots of different paths and lots of different programs. So today, in 2020, if you are going to pharmacy school, it will be a doctorate level degree. And so the, the reason I say that is because it was not always a doctorate level degree. Uh -huh. uh, many years ago, um, and I'm not sure exactly when things started to change, there was a bachelor's of pharmacy and then even a master's degree. But now any pharmacy program is a doctorate level degree. But what you need to do to get into that program will vary based on the program you're applying to. So, so the path I took, I, I went to undergraduate for four years and earned a bachelor's in biology. Right. And then I applied for a four-year pharmacy school doctoral program. And so that's the path I took. But some programs offer what they call like a fast track PharmD program, where you may have uh, anywhere from one to three years of undergraduate prerequisites. So courses that you need to take as requirements in order to get into the PharmD program. And then it will merge into the PharmD program. So within the same school. So one of my colleagues 
who I did residency with, she did a six-year program. So the first two years were undergraduate-level courses, Okay. Uh, science-related courses. You're sharing those classes with a lot of pre-med students because there's a lot of overlap. And then after those two years of prerequisites, she moved into the PharmD portion of the curriculum. So she never earned an undergraduate degree, but she did undergraduate coursework for two years and then went into the PharmD. Whereas I did four years of undergraduate coursework, got a degree, got my bachelor's, and then went to the PharmD curriculum. So there's there's a few different ways to go about it. But um, most traditional PharmD curriculums are four years. There are a few that are three years that go year-round, like you don't right. break for summer. Right. But Traditionally speaking, it's a four-year graduate program. How competitive is getting to a PharmD program? I would say it's fairly competitive, like a lot of different healthcare professional programs are. Um, you need to have a strong foundation in science. And uh, there's oftentimes, at least for pharmacy school, I, I think this is the case for most healthcare professionals, there is an exam that you need to take, that an entrance exam. So for medicine, it's called the MCAT. For pharmacy, mm -hmm. we call that the PCAT. So we took the, <laughs> the medicine it. name and just copied it. <laughs> so, um, and, and depending on how you do grade-wise in your undergraduate coursework, as well as what your score is on the PCAT, and then a few other items that the, the school may look, look at, they will have you come for an in-person interview. And you'll, it, for me, those interviews, if I remember correctly, were full day interviews. So it's not just one 30-minute interview, but you're, you're applying yourself to go to a graduate level program for four years of your life. So it's a big decision, not only for you, yeah. but for the college who's going to accept you right. as well. Yeah. Liz, can you describe what the typical pharmacy curriculum is like? Yeah. So for me, my curriculum... The first year, we take classes called uh, pharmacology, where mm -hmm. we're learning about the different medications and what we call drug classes. So we may have a number of different types of medication that can treat certain conditions. And then there are, within those drug classes, a number of different individual drugs that we need to learn about and how they are the same and how they slightly differ. We learn about how they work in the body. That's something that we call mechanism of action. How mm -hmm. exactly do we get the effect of the medication? Um, we learn about side effects. We learn about dosing. We learn about patient counseling. That's the first year. We also take a class called... Um, medicinal chemistry, where we're learning about the actual structures, the molecular structures of the medications and how different parts of those structures result in either uh, how the medication works or sometimes in a side effect that the medication may have. So that's mainly the first year with a few other patient counseling type classes as well. Interesting. And then, patient counseling. I've never heard that oh, as yeah. a curriculum. Oh, yes. Not familiar so, to me. For, for pharmacists, that is, that is a huge part of being a pharmacist, no matter what arena you, you work in, because ultimately you at some point are going to be needing to communicate with a patient about how to take their medications appropriately. And so learning how to talk to a patient about taking medications, there, there is a, a certain approach that you are trained to take in order to get the most uh, thorough medication history and mm -hmm. in order to make sure the patient really understands 
the appropriate thing. So like, for example, in patient counseling, we use what's called a teach back method. So instead of just saying, hey, Mr. Jones, here's your medication, take it with food at 7 p.m. every day, uh, may cause a little dizziness. Um, okay, you know, pay with your credit card here, you're good to go and send them out the door. You'd be talking to Mr. Jones about the medication and explain all the possible side effects. And then at the end, you say something like, Mr. Jones, just to make sure I, I did my job as a pharmacist and explained everything correctly, can you tell me how you're going to take this medication and tell me what things you're going to be, be looking mm -hmm. out for? And then you have the patient tell you back. And then that's where oftentimes you can assess, oh, yeah, they really understand. Or, okay, we need to go over this again because they didn't quite get it. Um, there's also patient counseling with actually demonstrating how to use a medication. So for medications that are not just pills that you take, but let's say um, an insulin pen. So you need to show someone how to actually inject themselves with insulin or how to actually use an inhaler in a correct way. You would be surprised of the creativity of some patients and how they like to use <laughs> inhalers. Um, what so do you mean? What do you mean by okay. that? Okay. So for example, this is not my own personal story, but my best friend who is also a pharmacist, she was counseling a patient once on proper inhaler use. And she was doing something similar to the teach back method where it was more of a demonstration method where she had his COPD was not well controlled and he was on all the right medications. So like in theory, it should have been controlled. So she said, okay, just show me how it is that you're using your inhaler. So it was one of the um, uh, HFA inhalers that you press and it pr produces a fine mist that the patient should hold their lips tight around the mouthpiece and inhale. What this patient was doing, first of all, he was holding it upside down and pressing the, the canister so it would spray mist into the air. And then he kind of sucked it up like <laughs> with his mouth and kind of went like that. Like he was not applying his lips around the mouthpiece. He was <laughs> snorting it and breathing it through his mouth and nose. Got it. Yeah. So that was just a good example of, okay, like instead of adding another medication because we think what he's on isn't working, it's like, well, no, actually let's just help this poor guy use the medications that he already has correctly and it might work. And I presume his care significantly improved. <laughs> yes, it did. Liz, if you could go back and do anything differently on along your career path, what what would it, what would you do? For me personally, I would pursue more education on the business side of things because the huh. the my undergraduate was a degree in biology. So it was lots of math and science. Right. And I think I maybe took an economics class, a 100 level economics class, but I didn't, I didn't take really any business classes as an undergraduate. In pharmacy school, there is one class, at least in my curriculum, a management class, but it's also very kind of elementary level um, and does not provide like a very strong foundation of the business side of things. So for me, if I could go back and do it again, what I would have pursued, and one thing we haven't talked about yet is the residency training that I did after the PharmD curriculum, which we can talk about more in a second. But some residency programs offer both a clinical uh, residency experience, which is what I did, but they also offer um, 
a secondary degree, like an MBA, Master's of Business Administration, or an MHA, which is a Master's of Health Administration. And I wish that I would have done that, not necessarily because I want a different job than what I have now, but just for my basic understanding of the business side of healthcare, because Mm -hmm. we spend so much of our time in school and honestly in our job as well, based on the clinical information. But it's also, I think, very important to have a a good understanding of the business side of how systems function um, and how they are successful from a system level, uh, the finances of it, the staffing, the administration, all of that I I have gained information over the years just from working, but I would have liked to have more formal training in that. Got it. What was your age about when you finished all your training with pharmacy school? So for me, what I call my first big girl job after I finished residency, (laughs) (laughs) I was 20, 20, um, eight. So 10 years after graduating high school. Understood. Uh, If for people who are interested, um, in learning more about your career, what resources do you recommend they look into or maybe listen to or read about or organizations to belong to? Yeah. Any, what can you recommend for that? So if if someone is interested in becoming a pharmacist, I think a good place to start would be um, this this one organization, which is it's called the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy. And so it's it's for for pharmacists. It's an organization for people who may teach in, in the pharmacy profession, but they also have information there for pharmacy students as well as students, prospective pharmacy students. So it, it talks about getting into pharmacy school and the variations like we discussed that may be for different individual programs and the prerequisites and things like that. So that's one organization. I'm not entirely sure if a membership is required or not. I I believe some of this information for pharmacy school admissions is just open to the public. So that would be a good place to start. Again, that's called the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy or AACP. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that I think would be helpful for students who are already in an undergraduate program, there's oftentimes a pre-med or a pre-health professions or a pre-pharmacy program at that college. Um, So for me, I can't exactly remember. I was involved with one of those programs at at my undergraduate school. I can't remember if it was specifically pre-pharmacy or if it was pre-med, but they allowed other health profession uh, students in. So I think that's a really good way to learn because oftentimes those clubs at school will have guest speakers or they may Mm -hmm. introduce prospective students to resources that they may have not otherwise heard about. So I think most undergraduate schools should have some sort of pre-health profession club. That would be helpful. Liz, you've been in, you've been doing pharmacy for a number of years now. Mm -hmm. What changes and challenges in your career or your occupation do you foresee and expect in three to five years from now or even 10 years from now? Well, I think the current situation that we're all living through this pandemic has been a really eye-opening experience as far as how healthcare looks. Um, Because as we know now we have nationwide, worldwide, there are some aspect of stay-at-home orders. We're trying to limit 
how much people are actually coming in to the clinic um, to see their providers. And so what that has forced us to do, which has been a long time in the planning, but slow to action, but it's amazing how a pandemic can hurry the speed to action for something like this, is to explore what we call telemedicine. And what that means is you're either doing a telephonic over the phone visit with your provider or what seems to be more effective is a virtual visit where you can see and hear your provider from your home. And so obviously there are still going to be situations where a patient needs to physically come in to clinic to see their provider. Um, We can't eliminate the need, the, the need or the, yeah, the need for in-person visits altogether, but there are a lot of opportunities to do things virtually. And so historically, one of the biggest obstacles to that has been insurance coverage and insurance Mm. reimbursement. So lots of times before this pandemic, insurance companies, which is how doctor's offices get paid for their services, either did not reimburse or reimbursed at a lower level for non-in-person appointments. And so there was a big draw to have people come in person for things that may not necessarily need to be in person. But now... Incentive wasn't there. Yes, exactly. And, And this is separate from some things that obviously have to be in person. If there's a physical assessment, you know, if you've broken your ankle and you need to right. someone to lay hands on you, that, that will always be an in-person visit. But for things that are they're more conversation-based type appointments, which for me, that's primarily what I do. It's very rare that I lay hands on a patient. I will take a patient's uh, blood pressure or maybe prick their finger to get a glucose sample. But apart from that, I am not laying hands on patients very often. So it's much more conversation-based. And so what I think this pandemic, maybe one of the silver linings from it is that we are now, as a health system and as a country, we are figuring out how to do virtual medicine. And this, I think, will actually improve access to care because lots of times patients who may want to come in can't because maybe they can't drive and maybe they cannot afford to take transportation to come in to see you. Um, Or maybe they don't want to take the extra time because there's traffic and they don't want to deal with that. So this may actually help improve access to, to patients who previously may have not had that access. So that's something that I look forward to seeing once, once this pandemic is controlled Whenever that may be, it will be very interesting to see how outpatient family medicine practice evolves in the virtual sense. Is there anybody that inspired you or inspires you today? Yes, there is. Um, So my dad, who you got the chance to meet at Mm -hmm. our wedding, he passed away just over three years ago. Um, In addition to being an outstanding father and generally just a human being, he I found him to be very successful in his professional life as well. So he was a teacher and he taught for 38 years. He started off teaching science and then that role slowly evolved into teaching computers and technology. And then he had an administrator role for information technology in his later years. But he he did a really nice job of, of just bringing his full self 
to not only his students, who he taught over the years, but also his colleagues. Um, over the course of his career and at his retirement, he had so many nice stories of, of students who are now adults who, who said that he, he really shaped their individual careers just because he, he had a very unique gift and ability to make people feel heard and to make people mm. feel supported. He gave his full self when talking to somebody. And so I think anyone who's ever met him can can contest to that. And so something that I admire about that is that he he didn't have a working self and a out of work self, but he he really did a nice job of working effectively with his students and his colleagues and he did something that he loved. So for me what that means is can I be the best human being I can be and treat my patients with respect and make them feel like they are getting that respect that they deserve? Can I bring my full self to my colleagues who I can work with and make them feel like we work well together? And also am I being true to myself and doing something that brings me happiness? Not to say that there weren't moments during his career when he was stressed and work mm -hmm. was a, a challenge for him because that that's true in any career. But I think if you can do something that you enjoy and you bring joy to others by doing it, that that's a really successful career. And I think he did that wonderfully. Liz, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on this podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been great to have you. Yeah, thanks, Richard. I've enjoyed it too. So that was Dr. Elizabeth Marn, a pharmacist. Thanks for joining us on this episode. If you want to reach out to Liz, please email her at Elizabeth dot marn at swedish dot org that's s-w-e-d-i-s-h dot o-r-g and you can also go to liz's episode on my website under listen there you can find her contact info as well as the show's transcript if you want to read how the show played out Next week's episode is an awesome person and friend of mine. She is a neurologist, but she has a unique skill set that very few neurologists have in this world. And guess what? It has to do with the brain. <laughs> All right, go figure. But no, seriously, we're going to talk about her unique skill that really helps patients, among other interesting things. So I hope you tune in for next week's wonderful episode. You've been listening to Health Careers with Dr. Marn. If you like what you heard today, then please subscribe to this podcast. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you get your podcasts. And if you know someone who's thinking about their career, please tell them about this podcast, Health Careers with Dr. Marn. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. And please go to Apple Podcasts and rate us or leave us a review. It's a great way to let other people know about the show. Or you can go to our website at healthcareerswithdrmarn.com or hcwithdrmarn.com. Through the website, you can subscribe to our email list, contact me, let me know if there are any particular health careers that you'd like to hear about, and provide any comments on how this can be a better podcast for you. I'm Dr. Richard Marn. And thanks for listening, and I hope you will tune in again.